0: topic this morning is snakes and dragons, as Pastor Brent just mentioned. Before we jump into what the Bible says, I'll just start with this. Uh, You think about famous English literature, well-known English literature that are dragon-slaying stories. What do you think is the most famous dragon-slaying story in English literature? St. George and the Dragon, that's right. And also another old English one that you all probably read in high school or college, Beowulf, remember that? Okay. Uh, some more popular ones that probably most of you have read include Lord of the Rings, where you've got Smog and the Hobbit and you've got Sauron as a dragon figure. Chronicles of Narnia have dragon figures throughout. Harry Potter's got one with Voldemort and you know, all, Nagini and Slytherin House and all that. Uh, it, it's really common in, in literature. Oh, Pilgrim's Progress, the, the, the most, uh, I say, the best selling book in English literature other than the Bible. Uh, and they've got this figure named. Polyon, right? That, that Christian fights. So dragons are, are all throughout English literature. And I, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it leads to a question why, why is it that there's so much dragon slain in stories and, that we read and in movies we watch? What is it about dragon slain stories that make our hearts just sing and enjoy them? And I've got a theory. And my theory is that we, we love stories where there's these, these epic battle between good and evil and when, when good conquers evil and there's a resolution. We love those kinds of stories because they echo the one true story that we're a part of in which God created the world and saves his people where God slays the dragon and gets his bride. In fact, one of my colleagues, Joe Rigney, uh, likes to summarize the message of the Bible this way. Kill the dragon... Get the girl. And, and so, I don't mean to be chauvinistic when I say it like that. The, the girl referring to the, the bride of Christ, the, the church, the people of God. Uh, the, the message of the Bible is Jesus is going to slay the dragon and all the dragon's enemies, all, all, the, all the dragon's uh, 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 his, his offspring, and he's going to save his people. Uh, so if you think about it, there are three main characters in the, in the Bible story. You've got the, the antagonist, the, the bad guy. The, the serpent, and, and that's Satan, and then you have this bride, This you could maybe think of it as, as a young lady, the, the people of God, initially it's Adam and Eve, and then you have the protagonist, the hero, that's Jesus. And in the story, it starts off where, where God creates this pristine world, and all's well, so Adam and Eve are there. But then the serpent, the snake, enters the garden. And that's where the conflict initially comes in the storyline. And the snake deceives Eve. And Adam and Eve fall into sin. And that changes the course of the story big time. And, and, and from that point on, the serpent alternates his, its, its strategy between deceiving and devouring. I'll come back to that. And then uh, uh, the serpent attempts to murder the offspring of the woman, Genesis 3.15. So he attempts to murder Jesus on the cross, but the plan backfires, and instead the offspring of the woman, the offspring, singular, crushes the head of the snake decisively at the cross. And then after that point, the, the serpent is not dead yet. The serpent's raging because he knows his time is short, and he's furiously persecuting the people of God between the cross and Jesus' second coming. It's where we are now. And in the future, we're not here yet, Jesus will come back and he will slay that dragon and he will get his bride. That's the story of the Bible, and it's, it's a beautiful story. It never gets old. Um, one thing that I've, I've noted in tracing the theme is that, uh, I'll, I'll mention two things. First is, uh, typically when you think of the term snake and dragon, You think of a snake as like something you see in real life, and a dragon's like this winged, fire-blowing creature that's massive. And that's not how the ancients thought of of a dragon. The Greek word is drachon, or other Hebrew words for it. It's more like you have snakes, and then monster snakes, okay? So it's like a really big, crazy, bad snake. Uh, So serpents is the big category, and then underneath serpents, you have two different kinds of serpents. You have snakes, and you have dragons. You guys with me? All right, all right, okay. So, if you're a, if you're a snake, you have one primary strategy, and if you have a, if you're a dragon, you have a different primary strategy. The primary strategy of a serpent is to deceive, to to lie, to backstab. The primary strategy of a dragon is to devour, assault. There's nothing subtle about dragons. <laughs> Okay? But there is something subtle about snakes. And Satan is the ultimate serpent in the Bible. And initially in the Bible storyline, he takes the form of a snake. At the end of the Bible storyline, we'll see in Revelation 12 and 20, he's the dragon. And in between that story, he alternates his strategy. Sometimes he's a deceptive snake, sometimes he's a devouring dragon. And I'll, I'll show that to you in the text. All right? So, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them to Genesis 3, and we'll jump right in. What I'll do is, is look at this in three parts. So here are the three big hooks for this, this, this talk. First, we'll look at the deceptive snake in Genesis 3. Third, at the end, we'll look at the devouring dragon in Revelation 12 and 20. And in the middle hook, in between, we'll look at snakes and dragons between the Bible's bookends. All right? So those are our three big hooks. So first... We'll start in Genesis 3 and look at the deceptive snake here. So what I'm going to do is is ask you to just look down often at particular verses in chapter 3 of Genesis. And I'm going to make some observations about this deceitful snake in Genesis 3. Look at verse 1. First thing to note, it says the serpent was more crafty. Crafty. So that word crafty in English means cunning or deceitful. But the word crafty that uh, Genesis 3 1 translates is a Hebrew word that's neutral. It could be positive or negative. It's initially ambiguous. But I think when you read the story, in light of the whole story, crafty is a really good translation. So the snake is deceitful. Also in verse 1, note it's a beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So what does that tell us about the snake? It's a creature. It is Something that, that God made. It's, it's not. It's not uh, the, the the quality of aseity, That's a, a technical term for God. It's true only of God. Means that only God exists from Himself without depending on anything else for existence. Everything else, other than God, is dependent on God to exist. So the snake is not like in some good versus bad epic stories you might know, where there the good and the bad uh, forces are equally powerful and they battle it out. These aren't two equal opposite powers. Okay, so God created the snake. Major asymmetry. Uh, another observation. In verses 1, 2, and 3, the snake's initial strategy is to deceive by questioning God. Did, did God actually say so he begins by questioning God. That's his strategy. And then he moves in verses 4 and 5 to deceive by contradicting God. You will not surely die. Then he flat out lies. He's still deceiving. And he tempts, he tempts Eve, deceives Eve to rebel against God. Adam follows Eve. And as a result of the snake's deceit, several things follow. So in verses 7 through 13, Adam's and Eve's sins separate them from God In verses 14 and 15, God curses the snake and promises a snake crusher. Also, verses 16 through 19, God punishes Eve and Adam. And all throughout this passage, uh, uh, Adam and Eve lose their innocence, and then God clothes them with garments of skin, verse 21. And, And then, in verses 22 through 24, God banishes them from the garden of Eden. And one last observation, and that's, if you read Genesis 3 carefully, you don't see the word Satan, do you? The the text in Genesis 3 does not say that the serpent is Satan. But we are Christians, and we read any part of the Bible in light of the whole thing, and there are other parts of the Bible that tell us who this snake is. And I'll mention just one passage of several, Revelation 12, which we'll read later. But Revelation 12 says uh, there's this ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. That's one of several clear New Testament passages that identify the snake as Satan. So I'm going to say that here in Genesis 3. This snake is Satan. I'm moving quickly. Uh, Now I'm going to go to the second hook. Snakes and Dragons Between the Bible's Bookends. And we could say a lot here. I think I'll, all I'll say is this. I'll, I'll focus on the ultimate serpent, who's Satan, and then five or six offspring of the serpent that are significant in Scripture and highlight some of those. And then we'll get to the the end, the, the book, other bookend in Revelation 12 and 20. So let's start by thinking about Satan as the ultimate serpent. So Satan, as the ultimate serpent throughout Scripture tempts God's people. He's the most crafty snake. He's so arrogant and self-deceived he tried to tempt Jesus. Uh, The Old Testament talks about Satan as the serpent in a way that shows God is sovereign over the serpent. One of the names for the serpent in the Old Testament is Leviathan. You heard that term? Leviathan? Uh, The the passage of Scripture that speaks most about Leviathan is in the book of Job. And the whole chapter, Job chapter 41. So if you read the book of Job, it starts off, there's a prologue where Satan comes into God's presence and accuses Job of of serving him uh, with selfish motives. And and God gives Satan permission to cause great calamity to Job. And then there's this dialogue that goes on and on and on and on where Job's basically saying, I'm innocent. His friends say, no, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. It goes on and on like that. And then another guy comes in, Elihu, and says a bunch more stuff. And then there's a monologue from God. Job gets his day in court, but it's not what he asked for. He wanted to prove himself innocent. And God thunders from the whirlwind and basically says, look at the cool animals. (laughs) And Job says, he didn't answer Job's question. And it's saying several things. It's saying, Job, you don't even have a right to getting an answer here. Uh, you, you can't demand an answer. You can't even understand my creation. You, you, you can't even understand and fathom all the animals I've created. Oh, and here are these other two animals, Behemoth and Leviathan. You're afraid of them. You would never, ever, ever try to provoke them. And here you are provoking me. And the, the, the message is loud and clear. God is more powerful than, than Leviathan. So who is Job to challenge God? And the, the point I'm trying to make here is that God is sovereign over Leviathan. Uh, further, Isaiah 27, 1, In that day the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. God will sovereignly destroy the most powerful, evil monster in the universe. The book of Revelation identifies that monster with Satan. God will slay this dragon. And as a result of that, serpents will no longer be deadly. So if you read Isaiah This is beautiful. Isaiah 11 uh, refers to the Messiah as this root from the stump of Jesse who will kill the wicked. And then look look what happens. Listen. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. So if any of you who have nursing children or or you've had them before, would you ever let your child play over the hole of a cobra? No way, right? But there's coming a day when that can happen. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's awesome. God is going to defang serpents, these poisonous serpents that make some of us really uh, fearful today. So I'm guessing most of you would not want to have a snake as a pet. It, they, just, they, they eat you out. You're like, no, nah, they, make, they make you scared, especially poisonous ones. Well, there's coming a day when snakes will no longer be like that. Even helpless toddlers will be able to play with serpents without danger, and they won't harm people. We'll be safe and secure around them. So Satan is the ultimate serpent, and he has several offspring. I'll mention, I'll mention six here, six categories of the serpent's offspring. Uh, I'll do the first one a little longer than the others. The uh, first one I'll mention is Egypt, and it's Pharaoh. So, Egypt and its Pharaoh is an offspring of the serpent. Now, let me make a case for this. So, first, if, if you're reading along in the Bible, you go from Genesis to Exodus. What's the first big event in the book of Exodus? The Israelites are increasing in number. Pharaoh's getting a little nervous about that. And he decrees what? To slaughter the baby boys of the, Egyptian, of, of the Israelites, right? And when you read that story, in light of several other events uh, it's all specifically, later in this, in this Exodus episode, Exodus seven and fourteen, and then Matthew two, and Revelation fourteen. Here's what I think you can conclude. Here's what I conclude: uh, that the Pharaoh of Egypt uh, had a had a headdress he would wear with a cobra, a erect cobra on it. The Egyptians venerated this serpent. They thought that Pharaoh was deity, and Later, when Moses was representing Yahweh and saying, let my people go, one of the signs was to throw his staff on the ground, which would turn into a snake. Pharaoh's magicians repeated, uh, were able to duplicate that. But then Moses' rod swallowed the magician's serpents. Remember that? Remember that? Okay. And that was a way of saying, this God is more powerful than that God. This God can swallow that one. And later in the Red Sea uh, poetry, the jubilation song, exulting in how God delivered the, the Israelites from the Egyptians in Exodus 14, one of the terms they use to celebrate what God did to the Egyptian army is that God swallowed them in the sea. So back up to, uh, to uh, Exodus 1, and you think about this decree to murder the babies, I think this is a satanic. A serpentine move where the dragons is attempting to devour the offspring of the woman. Similar to how later King Herod decreed to kill the babies in Bethlehem. Again, who's behind that? The same person behind King Herod's decree is the same person behind Pharaoh's decree. And Revelation 12 at the beginning repeats the Matthew 2 incident and identifies that the dragon is the one wanting to devour the babies. So I conclude from that that Satan is energizing Pharaoh as a serpent to murder babies. The dragon hates babies. And then in the Exodus, God delivers his people from this Egyptian serpent. And, And later passages in the Psalms and Isaiah, especially Psalm 74 and Isaiah 51, refer to the Exodus as God's defeating the serpent. All right, so also later in, in the storyline in, in Numbers 21, God sends poisonous snakes among his people. His people are complaining. They're, they're wishing they were still back in Egypt. They're griping. And it's like God says, okay, you, you miss Egypt? Here, have some of Egypt. Have some poisonous snakes. And, and then these Egyptians have to, in order to live, have to look at this bronze snake. This bronze snake that, that, that uh, Moses builds symbolizes the curse in the place of snake-bitten and faith-filled Israelites. The curse-bearing bronze serpent is a type of Jesus on the cross, as John 3 makes the connection. Later in the prophets, uh, in Isaiah, uh, Egypt is a toothless dragon, a Rahab who sits still, a do-nothing, Isaiah 30 verse 7. And the Lord's going to judge Egypt. So that that's the first big serpent to mention, Egypt and its pharaoh. I mentioned five more. These will be more quick. Uh, second, wicked leaders in Canaan and Moab. These are serpent heads to crush. I don't have time to read each of these stories, but I'll just mention each one. Jael in Judges 4 and 5 drives a peg into Sisera's temple. Again, this is head-crushing activity that goes back to Genesis uh, 3, 14, and 15, around there, it's this, the, this head-crushing theme occurs throughout Scripture and culminates climaxes in what Jesus does to the serpent on the cross. Another incident is in Judges 9 when a woman crushes Abimelech's skull. Another incident is 1 Samuel 11 where this guy named Nahash exists. And, and if you don't know Hebrew, you don't catch it at first, but the Hebrew word Nahash is the most common word for snake. So the guy's name is Snake. Uh, and Saul crushes Nahash the snake, Nahash the Ammonite, in First Samuel 11. And one more incident I'll mention here, and that's the one you all know probably the best of these stories, and that's First Samuel 17, the story of a, a young shepherd boy with a sling, some stones taken on a giant. So Goliath, in 1 Samuel 17, verse 5, is armed with a coat of mail. The the New American Standard Bible translates that Goliath was clothed with scale armor. NIV, he, he wore a coat of scale armor. So that Hebrew word translated scale occurs seven other times in the Old Testament, and every time it's referring to the scales of fish. And what's interesting is that the passage that's most parallel to this one in Ezekiel 29 refers to Pharaoh as the great dragon with scales I think Goliath is covered in scales just like a dragon and that God slays dragons and once again, the seed of the woman is crushing the seed of the serpent. Okay, so that's the second, second offspring of the serpent. Between the Bible's bookends, here's a third. That's the king of Babylon. In Jeremiah 51, also Jeremiah 8, God describes Babylon as a sea monster and a poisonous serpent, an adder. A fourth, fourth offspring of the woman I've already mentioned is King Herod a murderous dragon, the episode in Matthew chapter 2. And what's interesting is uh, there's typology going on here that's significant. I mentioned typology yesterday where you have a person, event, or institution in the Old Testament and that repeats in the New Testament in a way that climaxes in Jesus. So see if you can follow this connection. In Exodus 1, the dragon energizes Pharaoh, king of Egypt, as a murderous dragon to slaughter the Israelites' baby boys. But here's what Moses does. He escapes... He becomes a refugee in Midian, and he later delivers his people in the exodus from Egypt. Later on, in Matthew chapter 2, the same dragon energizes King Herod as a murderous dragon to slaughter the Israelites' baby boys in Bethlehem. Yet the Messiah, the new and greater Moses, escapes, becomes a refugee in Egypt, and delivers his people in the ultimate second exodus. Beautiful connection there. Okay, so, King Herod is the, the fourth offspring of the serpent. I mentioned two more, and they're related. Uh, Pharisees and Sadducees are a fifth one. They are a brood of vipers, right? That's how, how John the Baptist and Jesus describe them because they are so poisonous in what they, they teach. And then uh, they're really, that's a subset of the next category, and that's number six false teachers. False teachers are intruding snakes. Satan the snake employs false teachers as intruding snakes to infiltrate God's people. And that's why one of the qualifications for a pastor, an elder, is that he not only must teach healthy doctrine, he must be able to refute those who contradict. He must be able to refute those who contradict. Is there something I'm doing wrong, anyone? we okay? Okay, he must be able to... refute the intruding snakes, to, to take out the bears, take out the serpents. He's got to be able to, to do that uh, because false teachers are a huge threat to God's people. There are two passages, I won't go through them now, Romans 16 and 2 Corinthians 11, that make this connection explicit between false teachers as snakes. I am going faster than I've ever gone through this, but let's keep going here. Hook number three, uh, the dragon in Revelation 12 and 20. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Revelation 12. And let's start by, by reading the passage. And then I'll, I'll make some observations about the dragon here. Revelation 12. Let's begin. Revelation 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them day and night, who, who, who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. And then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. That's quite a story. And I just realized I had my NIV tab open there. Sorry if I offended any of you. I'll go back to to the ESV. Whoops. (laughs) I like the NIV too. Okay, focus. Um... The devouring dragon in Revelation 12 and 20. Uh, Let me make some comments, observations about this dragon. So first off, you notice in verses 9, 10, 13 following, this dragon has six labels that apply to the same person. So here they are. You got dragon, ancient serpent, that's alluding to Genesis 3, the devil, or that means slanderer, Satan, that means adversary, the adversary, deceiver, and accuser of our brothers. All six terms refer to the same evil person. Another observation this dragon is powerful. Verse 3 says it's a great red dragon. That's what the horns are for, symbolizing great power extending over the whole world. Another observation is in verses 1 through 4 this dragon plans to do something evil, this dragon plans to devour the Messiah. This male child is Jesus the Messiah. It says he rules with a rod of iron. That's referring back to Psalm 2 and Revelation 2.27, also Revelation 19.15. This dragon plans to thwart God's master plan in Genesis 3.15 by devouring the Messiah. And you think about this imagery. It's, 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 it's so gross. You've got this dragon crouching, waiting for this child to be born so that he might eat it might devour it and it's it's repulsive and you think only a monster could do such a thing and that's exactly how we're supposed to feel when we read this 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 is a dragon the dragon who's behind us satan also verse 4 at the end it says her child was caught up to god and to his throne did the dragon succeed in in its evil plan no it failed the dragon fails to devour the messiah the dragon tries to defeat the messiah but fails And then verses 7 through 10, the dragon and his angels get thrown down to earth. Verses 11 and 12, the dragon's conquered on the basis of the blood of the Lamb and the word of the saints' testimony. And then this dragon, throughout this passage, is is furiously persecuting God's people. That's why the woman is fleeing into the wilderness. And in verse 12, the dragon knows his time is short. That's why his wrath is so great. He's pursuing this woman with a vengeance. And so, so I'm not going to go into detail here. Uh, here's how I understand the symbols, just quickly. I think the woman symbolizes the people of God. The 1260 days symbolize a period of intense suffering for God's people before God delivers them. It's, it's kind of like this. Um, it's uh, an already-not-yet scheme of viewing of the kingdom of God where it's, it's already here in the person of Jesus when he came, but it's not yet fully here, not yet fully consummated. It parallels in some ways... Uh, World War II, where you have D-Day and V-E-Day. You guys familiar with those terms? So D-Day, storming the beach of Normandy. Uh, the war is essentially over, but it's not officially over. Between then and victory in Europe Day, some of the worst, most intense, brutal, deadly fighting of the whole war happens, like the Battle of the Bulge. V-E-Day is when it's finally completed. In a similar way, not, it, this, this is a work of here. In a similar way, when Jesus defeats Satan on the cross, it's like D-Day, he, he decisively defeats Satan. There's no way he's going to win this war. But he hasn't fully defeated him yet. That's going to come when he returns. And in between that time, which is where we are now, some of the most vicious fighting can occur. And Satan right now, in our context, is raging because he knows his time is short. He hates God's people. He hates the offspring of the woman. And that includes you if you're in Christ. Another observation here. The dragon can't destroy God's people. Verse 6. She has a place prepared by God and she 's going to be nourished there uh, she 's in this wilderness, and I think this wilderness symbolizes a place where God tests and protects and miraculously nourishes his people i didn 't read this part, but if you look down at verse in, in chapter thirteen in the first paragraph there, you see this other animal, a beast. It says to this beast, the dragon gave his power and his great authority, so also the, this dragon is empowering the beast. And there's another beast in verse, uh, chapter 13, verses 11 to 18. So there, there's a dragon, beast one, and beast two, and it's this counterfeit trinity. So you've got the dragon, Satan, this first beast in chapter 13, one to four, that rises out of the sea, and another beast that rises out of the earth, the false prophet. So th- this, this dragon is trying to mimic the, the triune God. And if you flip over to chapter 20, be the last place to turn, chapter 20, you'll see that this dragon is bound for a thousand years. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 7, refer to this millennial period, this 1,000-year period. And Christians disagree on the nature of the millennium. I'm not going to talk about that now. What's far more important to agree on is that Jesus is coming back to slay the dragon and save his bride. And whatever it means that an angel binds Satan, the dragon, for 1,000 years, we should be able to agree on this. God is more powerful than the dragon look at the wording here it says uh, verse 1 I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain and the angel sees the dragon so this dragon can't bind God but God can send an angel to bind the dragon Okay, so this dragon is not more powerful than God and what is this dragon attempting to do? Chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. He's out to deceive the nations. That's the goal, deceive the nations. He's Back in 12.9, he's the deceiver of the whole world. That's his goal, but he doesn't reach it. And then we've got the, the resolution to the story, chapter 20, verses 9 and 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever which means that the dragon will never again accuse or deceive or persecute God's people. That's what we're yearning for now. That's what we will eternally praise God for in the future. It's a beautiful ending. It's, it's the feel you have when you, when you finish reading The Lord of the Rings and you know, the fires of Mount mountain doom take off the ring and Sauron's destroyed and everything ends... Almost, there's still that episode at the very end, They go back to Hobbiton, forget that. But that, that, that it just ends and it's, you're just thinking, yes, evil is defeated. Uh, that's a, you love stories that end like that because they're echoing the one true story. This is, this is real. This is going to happen. We're, it's happening now. We're part of this story. So now, I'll make a few concluding observations. And I think we might have a little bit of time for Q&A too. Um, how do we live in light of this story, this epic kill the dragon, get the girl story? Right now, how does it affect how we live? Let me suggest just a few ways. I have a, a longer list, but I think I'll mention just three. First, and most obvious, don't imitate the poisonous serpent. Okay? So, the serpent's offspring imitate the serpent. Remember what Jesus said in John 8, when he was speaking to some certain bad guys? He said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. So for a start, and there are many other ways, but for a start, you imitate the serpent when you murder, reject the truth, or lie. Don't imitate the poisonous serpent. Here's another way to apply this. Beware the serpent as the deceiving snake and devouring dragon. Beware. Be on your guard. Uh, there's another metaphor for, for Satan. Describes him as a, as a lion. 1 Peter 5 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls alou- around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Dragons devour. He's seeking, he's seeking to devour you if you're one of God's children. He hates you. You're an offspring of the woman. He hates you. He's out to devour you. You are his prey, so you need to be on guard all the time. Expect him to attack and keep attacking. Don't let your guard down, and don't flirt with his deceptive lies about entertaining sinful thoughts or doing sinful activities. And then finally, and this one might be surprising to you as an application point, and that's to enjoy good serpent-slaying stories as echoes of the greatest story. I love more and more now fiction, non-fiction stories that portray good and evil in a way where the story doesn't make you want to root for evil, but, but the division the, the line is clear. There's clearly a good side and a bad side, and the bad side loses. I love stories like that because they echo this story. I do not recommend stories, books, or movies where the, the way that the author or the producer portrays a story is playing with your, your heart to root for someone to commit adultery or root for someone to commit a heist on a bank or something. It's, it's trying to get you to root for something that's sinful. That's evil. But there are stories that, that move your affections in the right ways. And we should enjoy those kinds of stories, even create them ourselves, if they help us enjoy the one true story better. So, we have a few minutes left here. I think at least 7 to ask me to explain what didn't make sense, uh, other questions, comments. So, fire away. Don't be bashful. Oh, I think I need to stay over here. Something happened here. I'll stay here. Questions. Yes, sir. Roll out. Yes, sir. (laughs) Next question. This is easy. (laughs) Big groups, some people are more bashful to ask questions, but I know some of you have them, so let's go. Let them rip. I, I worked really hard to cut a lot out so you could ask questions. Are you serious? Okay, right here. And then over here. Yeah. Yeah. So he's asking about pro-choice. Early in the service, you mentioned uh, uh, a ministry you support that helps mothers who are considering abortion and don't do it. Uh, Satan hates babies. So part of his strategy to deceive and devour includes murdering babies. So I think that... Fits completely with the characteristics of the dragon in scripture, and the dragon is behind the abortion industry. Patrick Brent? You mentioned before you said you didn't feel like this is the one unifying theme. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, no. Where are there other themes that you're aware of that Okay. So that is a big question. Uh, <laughs> I can't just say yes. Uh, <laughs> Oh, where do I start here? Um, Kingdom, covenant, holiness. Uh, I'm trying to pull up a document really quickly where I have this listed out, and I could give you a longer list. These are the sorts of themes people try to say, is there one big theme that most unites all of Scripture? If so, what would it be? And in the scholarship for New Testament, Old Testament, there's no consensus here at all that there's one unifying theme. I'm not convinced there is. Um, Do you think there is, by the way? Maybe you should say what you think it is, and then I'll tell you what I think. A future time. A future t- <laughs> Seriously? Uh, Seriously? Hang on. I'm finding it, finding it, finding it. Got it. All right. I'm there. So I'm going to read a list to you of uh, this. I've just compiled a list of, of themes people have proposed for the whole Bible. It's a list of 16. Some say that it's communion between God and man, the covenant faithfulness of God, covenant, creation and new creation, election, Exodus and the new Exodus, the glory of God and salvation through judgment, God, like just God, uh, grace and obedience, Jesus, the Messiah, the kingdom or rulership of God, the people of God, promise and fulfillment, salvation, salvation history, type and anti-type. That's what I found in in the literature, people proposing themes. I haven't found any of those to be convincing. To have just one theme to me seems reductionistic. Uh, So what I I find more compelling is to say the Bible has a central storyline with an overarching theological message that intertwines many of those themes. And uh, my colleague, Jason DeRoshi, he teaches Old Testament. We worked on a a single sentence to try to summarize it. So our sentence goes like this, God reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ. That's our best attempt to try to bring it all together in one sentence. Feel free to pick that apart or come back. Okay, okay. <laughs> Do you have a few more And yeah, and the serpent theme, nowhere close to being the major theme of all scripture. Other questions? Right here in the front. How did I see this? Well, I... I I teach biblical theology every year to our seminary students, so I'm I'm getting in the habit of trying to read the whole Bible this way. And also, uh, one of my colleagues uh, has been pointing out this theme and putting it on my radar. He he did this first in 2013, and ever since then I've wanted to write a book on this. So I actually just finished a book on this. It's going to come out next year with Crossway. Probably will be called The Serpent and the Serpent Slayer for Crossway publishers. Um, But yeah, it's been on my radar since 2013. Uh, and I've been seeing it all over since. Yeah, a few uh, in front of you. Pastor Davy. So he asked, "Is there an advantage to memorizing scripture just in general, or you mentioned with reference to themes and storyline? Okay, uh, it's, 10, it's 11.58, so I'm going to do this concisely. Yesterday, he's trying to be nice and do this bump set spike thing with me because he, he was here yesterday when I did a session on, on memorizing Scripture. Uh, so I'd say that the advantage of memorizing lots of Scripture that helps you understand the storyline is primarily that it helps you hide God's Word in your heart so that you might not sin against Him and so that you can enjoy God more. That's the whole point of all. We study our Bibles at the end of the day, not so we can walk away and go, oh, that was cool. That was neat. That was, that was really insightful. It's so that it, it transforms our minds and our affections so that we love God and we enjoy God. That's what it's about. And all this Bible study, all this Bible memorization is to help us enjoy God. That's what we're going to be doing forever, and we can start doing it more and more right now.